The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is David Yutz with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is David Sandalow, who is the inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy, which launched earlier this year at Columbia University. Until a few months ago, David was the Assistant Secretary for Policy and International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Energy, and he was also Undersecretary of Energy, acting for much of the last year. Prior to that, he held positions related to energy and climate change at the Brookings Institution, the Clinton Global Initiative, and the National Security Council, and he's been a prolific author. We're speaking on the occasion of the Center on Global Energy Policies China Energy and Sustainability Forum on November 7th, 2013. David, thank you for speaking with us today. Thanks, David. Thanks for the work you do at the National Committee. Uh, I read recently that you made something like 13 visits to China while you were in the Department of Energy, which seems quite extraordinary. Of all the changes in global energy and climate issues to study, why China? The world's energy future is being shaped in China today, David. Um, I spent a day in Shanghai about two years ago that began with a visit to a 2.2 gigawatt coal plant. And for those of you who aren't energy experts, that's about twice as big as a big coal plant here in the United States. Um, I went from that 2.2 gigawatt coal plant to the largest solar manufacturing facility in the world. Uh, and the next day, drove by the bullet train that goes at 180 miles an hour from parts of Shanghai to the airport, uh, went by an enormous transmission line, 1,000 kilovolt transmission line, larger capacity than any in the United States, uh, to one of the most remarkable state-of-the-art automotive test facilities I've ever been to. What's happening in China today is it's not just transforming China at an epic pace, but it's transforming the world. And that's why China. Well, I think every time I look at energy statistics, uh, the numbers in China are just startling in every way. I understand usually people say that China seems to have the largest shale oil resources in the world. Uh, And clearly China is eager, if possible, to replicate North America's shale successes in the last decade. Uh, But at the same time, it looks like China faces some considerable challenges to making that extraction and and production viable. And I wonder if you could share with us what do you think the prospects are for China to develop its shale resources? The premise of your question is right, David. Uh, First, China does have enormous shale resources, by some measures the largest in the world. There's been some discussion about that, but uh, whether or not that's the case. But by any measure, the shale resources are enormous. But they're also uh, going to be challenging to develop. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, Some of those reasons are below ground. The the shale resource in China is not as accessible in general as what we've had here in the United States. It's deeper. Um, Some of it is over terrain that's more mountainous and makes it harder to produce. So there's below ground issues in, in recovering the shale. There's also issues above ground. In some parts of China where, where there's significant shale, in particular in Xinjiang, um, there's not much water 
and, and hydraulic fracturing requires water or some fluids. There's not a pipeline network in China today of the kind that we had in the United States uh, when the shale gas revolution began, and, and that's a barrier. And there's also issues around price controls and industrial structure that I think may be a, a challenge as China moves forward. So the, the government has set some very aggressive goals uh, in China for production, both in 2015 and in 2020. I think from the research I've been doing, um, I found that the consensus, even among Chinese observers, is that it's unlikely that those goals are going to be met. But there's, there's a determination to move forward, and great benefits both for China and the world, by the way, if, if China succeeds in this effort. That's one reason that the U.S. government for a number of years has had a very active bilateral program with the Department of Energy and the Department of State and others working with Chinese counterparts uh, to assist with the development of Chinese shale resources. Let me come back to the, the U.S. side for a moment. Um, one frequently reads the phrase North American energy independence, and I know some people don't like that phrase at all. Um, can you tell us a little bit why is that phrase not uh, perhaps appropriate or, or why it might be misleading? Maybe it's worth just talking about that in the context of what's happening with oil production um, in the United States today. Um, it's remarkable what's happened um, with the increase in U.S. oil production over the course of the past couple of years. Um, we've a added as much um, additional production in the United States as the rest of the world combined. Um, it's made a huge difference for, for global oil markets, and it's reduced our import bill, which is extremely important um, from an economic standpoint, very, very helpful. Um, and there, there are even some projections that the United States will taper off and at some point in the next couple of decades not even be a net importer of oil. I think there's experts who are skeptical of that, but that we're, we're certainly moving in that direction. But to your question about independence, uh, oil in particular is a global market. And it's a, essentially there's a global price for oil. And so if oil prices rise um, anywhere in the world, they rise everywhere in the world. And even in a world in which the United States were producing more oil than it was consuming, if the global price of oil rose, then the price that consumers in the United States pay would rise. That, we've seen that, for example, um, in, today Canada and Norway are both energy independent industrialized countries. They export oil into um, global markets, but their consumers still take the global price of oil. Um, so. You know, in a, in a scenario, for example, in which there were some significant geopolitical disturbance and oil uh, stopped coming out of the Persian Gulf, um, even if the United States were producing more oil than it would consume, consume, it would still have very significant negative impacts for the United States. Right. Do you find that the Chinese government officials or Chinese experts that you interact with see things that way? Because we've sometimes heard presumptions that American force projection or American foreign policy will significantly change once we become energy independent. I, I found in my, in my uh, trips to China in the past year that there's a lot of discussion about this with mm. Chinese government officials and, and a lot of uh, questions about what will the role of America be in the world as U.S. oil imports decline. So I, I think there, there, there is certainly um, interest and strong interest in this topic among the Chinese leadership that I've had the opportunity to talk to. China now consumes something like half of all the coal burned in the world, and I think there are similarly dramatic numbers around liquid natural gas. 
However, China is not a member of the International Energy Agency uh, or other uh, international bodies that are responsible for, among other things, maintaining energy price stability. Is it your sense that China can join or should join the IEA? Well, there are some threshold legal challenges with China actually joining the International Energy Agency. That, that, that body, which is based in Paris and is affiliated with the organization called the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, it dates to the 1970s. It, the treaty structure that created it is not as flexible as would be desirable in terms of adding additional countries. So there, there's some real challenges in terms of actual membership of China in the IEA. Um, in my view, it would be very desirable for China to be part of whatever international organization is helping with um, the management of international energy issues for the obvious reason that China is a major player in international energy markets, and as I said earlier, is only, that's only going to grow. Um, in the face of these legal barriers, China has deepened its cooperation with the International Energy Agency in some very significant ways, and I think that will continue. China is also working much more closely bilaterally with the United States in these areas. I, when I was at the U.S. Department of Energy, we created a hotline-type uh, structure for the U.S. and China to communicate in the event of oil crises. And I visited a strategic petroleum reserve site in China. Um, it was told I was the first uh, foreign government official to do that. So mm -hmm. China's reaching out in new ways to cooperate with the world community on energy management. I think that I, and I hope that that will significantly deepen in the years ahead because China is such an important stakeholder in international energy markets and, um, and the state of the cooperative mechanisms are extremely important. Uh, the National Committee recently convened a track two dialogue on the shale revolution and in particular on the implications of that for Sino-American relations. And uh, we were almost able to entice you to be a participant in that. I think we had scheduling uh, challenges. But one of the most interesting moments in those discussions happened when we discovered a pretty significant disconnect. Certainly the people in the room uh, participating from the Chinese side of the track two uh, had a very sophisticated understanding of the shale revolution and, and a lot of the economic and, and technical implications. But they told us that many in China, I guess this, what they meant by that was policymakers, uh, people at senior levels, um, take a different view and believe that shale production in the United States is an unsustainable bubble. And then they said there's another significant group that uh, may believe that the shale revolution is essentially a fake, that this is a, a story being put out to disguise American economic decline. So there appear to be quite dramatic different understandings of, uh, of what it is that's happening. And I wondered if in your encounter with officials in China, if you'd run across that array of views. To what I have run into a lot is very, very strong mutual suspicions from both of our countries about the other, and that just plays out across a range of issues. This type of comment that you just reported on shale gas is an example of that um, from the Chinese side. Um, I have not heard, I've maybe heard some inkling of the first, I don't think I'd heard before, the second comment that you just suggested. This is why it's so important to have organizations like the National Committee um, that bridge the gap between our two countries. Um, the, uh, the fact is that we are the largest developed and developing countries in the world, and um, we have very different cultures, um, and each one of us has very deep suspicions of the other and often ascribes 
um, malign motives to the other. And the only way to handle that is dialogue. And, and I think dialogue about shale gas is important. And then dialogue across all these topics is important um, uh, as well. There are, of course, many more issues on China and energy that we could discuss. But for today, I just want to express our thanks, David Sandelow, for joining us and sharing your expertise.